Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Matt. And I'm Phil. And we're here to talk about people's roots into music and how they first found that spark that started them on their journey. We'll be talking to various people from around our music scene and beyond, all with different interests, inspirations and stories to tell. And our first guest is the wonderfully unique Mr G LaRoche. Hello, my name is G LaRoche. I play bass and sing in a couple of bands and I play guitar on me Todd. Um, I organise something called Bullstock Music Festival and uh, I have a colour television screen. Okay, so what do you remember from getting into music? What's the first thing that like called to you? I think it's it. Most people would have probably guessed like my first real love of music was Queen, um, and I do remember. I remember old Freddie Mercury's tribute thing, and I was probably about eight. You know, he had his tribute concert. They did it in Wembley and all this. And I remember kind of watching it. Not really. I don't think at that point I really understood what death was, but it was all these songs that I recognised from either my parents playing them or. You know, I don't know, you'd hear, hear them in adverts or this, that and the other. And just mm. thinking, oh, I know loads of these songs. I should probably check these out. And, you know, Al, when, when you're like nine or ten, you don't just like something, you love it. You know, so I just threw myself into it. And by the time I was probably 12, 13, I'd bought every single Queen album on tape. Uh, you know, and I, I, had, I had another friend at school who liked Queen. And I was like, you know, how many albums you got? Oh, well, I've got a limited edition Flash Gordon, you know. Was there a first uh, Queen song where you're like, oh my God, what is this? Oh, do you know, um, it's kind of hard to recollect. I, I suppose it probably would have been We Will Rock You because it's just one of them tunes that grabs you and all yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Very completely simplistic. simple. The sort of thing a kid can catch and just repeat. And I do remember actually when I was in primary school, um, I used to love starting the, the, um, the class up in sing-alongs. And there'd be points we'd either be standing in the, the dinner queue or we'd be sitting waiting for the teacher to come and I'd start singing We Will Rock You. Um, and occasionally I'd like jump on the tables and bang me feet and all this until the teacher came in and told me to be quiet. I remember one point the headmistress came in and said, Graham, will you be quiet? And it was just the point I said, sing it now. <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, that possibly is where my love for attention comes from. We were saying about We Will Rock You. I've got this wonderful memory of being really young and doing a school performance, doing a school play, and we rehearsed it to buggery, but we're all absolutely nervous, and we can hear that there's all the all the adults and parents coming outside, and our drama teacher lined us all up and just started going, dum 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 and got about a hundred of us to start singing this, and you could hear it outside, and it amped us up, and we went on stage and smashed it. Fantastic. So that See, simple well. primal. Ah. kind of joy yeah, and pushing. Yeah. It's a hell of a tune. And so that is where Jesus Hooligan have stolen all their material from. Oh, yeah. Yes, <laughs> yes. And what, so what, what was your first gig? Do you remember seeing live music? When, oh, I mean, man. Um, we, um, the, the, I know this sounds like the kind of sad little thing that um, parents do to push their kids into uh, playing, but we used to perform a lot for the family. Well, you know, we, we used to do little plays with our cousins. We As soon as we started learning the guitar, our, our grandma on my mum's side, she, I mean, that, that they're a completely musical family, really, because we are quite proud that my great-great-granddad was like the piper for the king, came down from Scotland, and so since then we consider ourselves musical. So very young age, as soon as we picked up guitars, they would just plop us in front of the family, whatever we, you know, learn play it to them, this, that, and the other. 
But I suppose first real proper gigs were with um, classical guitar ensembles, mm. which as much as um, I think it's fair to say me and my brother both detested them while we were there, mm. gave us a really great discipline and grounding in mm. performing and guitar playing techniques and such. Isn't that just the way when you're a kid, you totally don't appreciate it until later on? Hell yeah. I wish I'd have gone a bit further with classical guitar, to be honest. But, you know, when as soon as someone buys you an amp, and you realise yeah. you can get distortion on it. Why the hell do you want to pluck yeah, anymore? Exactly. Oh, that's what I was going to ask. Did you have like a rebellious phase in your music? Because I was talking about my punk phase, yes. as everyone does when they're 15. What do well, you have? As literally as soon as we got our first amp, and it was a it was a little... Well, they called it a park, and it was basically a Marshall amp, and park was like the, uh, the, the small version. Yeah, I've seen them. And it, it had this really... Even to this day, I remember I had a wicked gain on it. Like... Half my students that I teach nowadays don't even have good gains on their amps. But this had a really good... So as soon as I got this, I was probably about 11. My dad would like try and play Shadows on it and Eddie would uh, be, be trying to play ACDC. And I would just put this gain all the way up. Eddie, Eddie's your brother? Eddie's my brother. Right. I should point that out. Yes, yeah. Um, and I would just put the gain full pelt and just... Jump! <laughs> jump! Jump! And just try and get the most awful distorted sound I could out of it. Brilliant. What, what what age were you when you first started guitar playing guitar then? Uh, I think both me and my brother were about once get eight, eight or nine. Oh, that's early. I mean, that is quite early. Yeah. You, you get a lot of a lot of people. A lot of people like uh, you know. You listen to an interview with a guitarist. A lot of them just say something like thirteen, fourteen. Do you know? What, I mean, that, puberty hits. You know. Yeah. There, there was a lot of people through school that started started guitar at fifteen and sixteen and just progressed so fast mm. it made me think christ i've spent all this time on guitar and i haven't learned stuff like that and it right but i suppose the competitiveness is actually quite a good thing um like if you look at look at the stones and the clash or look yeah. at uh, lennon and mccartney you know they all they had their competitiveness to kind of drive them forward and i like to think through school when i saw other people pick up guitars and <clears throat> play things better than i could i thought right up my game yeah and especially with my brother I always thought you picking up guitar was part of that famous incident. I always heard you ended up cutting off the tip of your willy in like a faint... It was like in a bike accident and you had to do something else with your hands. Where the hell have you heard that? Your dad. <laughs> you... <laughs> your dad. He says you got it caught in the spokes of your bike and I you think... had to do something else to rehabilitate your hands. I'm definitely sure you're, you're making this up. <laughs> <laughs> but So you had your rebellious phase in music. I just wanted to make a lot of noise. Yeah. And I think that's why why everyone gets into metal and punk, really, isn't it? Yeah. And rock in general. Yeah. What about non-music? I wanted to ask you about non. Oh, God, how many people... No one out there is going to know what non is, aren't That's they? why I'm asking. Okay, well, um, non, for those that don't know, is occult music. If anything, it's kind of like a, a soundtrack for if you were doing a... Um, you know, like a, a an occult ceremony or something or other, or reading tarot cards. But the idea of it is it's supposed to sound really unnatural and... I mean, it's uh, the the albums that they've got have got warnings in them saying these can cause panic attacks and should not be listened to for, for people with uh, weak hearts. And I just found that um, what's the word? Uh, well, addictive. Uh, you know, you you read something like that and you just think oh, I need this. Yeah. Like like when someone bans an LP or that you know if if a single gets banned, then everyone goes out and buys it. Yes, indeed. Um, well, what's, what, what are you pointing to there? I'm actually not sure. What I'm pointing to the Video Nasties, mate. Oh, my Video Nasties, yes. Yeah, yeah well, exactly. Exactly, they've been banned. I have to see them. Yes, yeah, quite. And right. I, I think my, 
my love of video nasties is because from the age of zero to the age of about 13, all of these were widely considered to make you murderers. If you watched them, you yeah. would go mental. Yeah. Yeah. And that sounds brilliant. And as we all know, heavy metal incites violence and devil worship. Indeed he do. In, in, yes. in everyone who listens to it. Every That's single yeah, one. Everyone. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, basically, if you've listened to a Burzum album, then you must have killed someone. That is generally how it works. So uh, were you in bands when you were, in your, when you were a teenager? My first band I was in with, um, funny enough, when I talked about Queen and this friend who was, um, we were always in competition to see who was the biggest fan. Yeah. He also played guitar. Right. So we got in a band together um, and asked his brother to play bass. We didn't have a bass. He would just sit there. In fact, I think we gave him a keyboard. And uh, so I'd come with me little park amp, turn yeah. the volume up, and I've written this song. Boo, boo, and that was basically it. We were called Hellfire, which I thought was quite a cool name for eleven-year-olds. Yeah, yeah, that's and, not um, bad. Yeah, so uh, and we we nicked one of them Coomers. Do you know what the Coomers are? The little recording devices from schools that used to listen to. No, I can see what that face. No Coomer, um, and used to listen to you know uh, stuff in school with them. Like a stop-start tape recorder exactly, that you could plug yes. big jack headphones in. Yeah, they had like eight jack headphones. Yeah, it had like a grey front. That's right, yes. Oh, God. Yeah. I didn't even you know just I had a massive had flashback. That. Oh, God, yeah. I had a massive flashback. Yeah. But we nicked one of them and we recorded this song and played it to the neighbour. And she was, uh, I think she was about maybe 17 or 18 at the time. And bless her, she, she knew it was shit. But she kind of went, oh, really good. I'll give that, I'll give that nine out of ten. <laughs> But we came over thinking, ah, oh, we're rock stars and all this. Brilliant. Yeah, first band. Ah. Okay, yeah. And uh, so so do you remember your first show like playing in... in... We weren't with that band, that's for sure. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> um, first show. Um, well, as I say, apart from guitar ensembles, we, we soon joined up with a rock school, which is the same thing. You, you basically play to all your parents and all your parents' friends mm. in... Uh, yeah, in assemblies and stuff like this. But rock school, obviously, we got to play rock music. And luckily, our teacher, actually, a fellow called Chris Pine, who I think is still teaching in Hitchin. Yeah. Was a, yeah, really nice fellow he, he was. Yeah. And um, he let us play ACDC, uh, The Razor's Edge, off right. the Razor's Edge album. That was one that I picked out, and it was brilliant. And the feeling I got from playing that, because it's... Quite an intricate little song yeah, for, yeah, I think, yeah. what we must have been 13 or 14. Yeah, and absolutely. the buzz coming up. I remember the nerves being intense before, but the buzz afterwards was just, you know, it's like your first orgasm, isn't it? The first time you feel like you've come off stage and you've really done something that you loved. Oh, that's great. So, yes. And then you're now trying to chase that feeling wherever you can get it. Well, yeah? just like uh, people on ecstasy, I suppose, they're trying to get that first buzz back again. So, so you, you've been teaching guitar for how long now? Actually, not that long. I, I held off on teaching guitar for ages. Mm. I remember um, my old flatmate, Owen, Owen Stephen, uh, who you, you, you know, and I assume you might interview at some point. He started teaching and he, was, he kept saying to me, gee, you should really get into this, you know, this bit of extra money, you know, it'll get you out of the job that you detest at the moment. And I was always a little bit, had me back up about it, kind of went, nah, well, I ain't got the patience for all that bloody kids, blah, 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 blah. But about, um, I think it was about four years ago now, uh, some friends of mine um, started, they asked me if I would just teach their daughter. I was kind of said, oh, I don't know. If I and they said, look, just do a few lessons. I found it was a lot 
I had a lot more patience than I gave myself credit for. And from that, just started getting more and more students until um, Sam from Joan of Arc, bless her, she got me onto Roots, which is like teaching more classes. And from Roots, we've we've gone on to give these kids uh, platforms to play on. Great. And, you know, they're now forming bands. Some of them are going off doing great guns, playing rhythms, playing further afield. It's a great feeling. Yeah, I saw you on stage earlier at Ballstock when you were with, I assume they were your students as well. Was that on uh, Sunday? I believe so, yeah. Yes, yeah, that would have yeah, been. Yeah, I saw all the students. I thought that was really cool. And it's the same thing going back to what you were saying about someone giving you a platform or the neighbour saying, yeah, nine out of ten. Well, nine out yeah, of 10. exactly. Good, good yeah. going. Yeah, I suppose it all comes like round circle. The one thing that I do regret is that um, when, I, when I was in school... Uh, we saw a band play, and they were from they were from the school. They were like sixth formers when when we were, I suppose, doing our GCSEs, and um, everyone went absolutely mental for it. But they were playing even at that age what I considered to be lame music, very much kind of the wrong sort of pop covers, um, and I think that made me really intensely jealous, and I really wanted to do something like that. But in my own, I wanted to get up there and play Metallica or play Slayer or uh, Sex Pistols or something just with a bit more bite. But with the full knowledge that there's no way you could get in front of a bunch of kids at school and play that sort of music. But with a lot of my students nowadays who are that age and they love Slayer and they love or Slipknot nowadays and this, that and the other. I kind of see a little bit of Tiny G there, you know. So I'm like thinking, yes, yeah. you will go out there and play Metallica because I couldn't. Oh, wicked. Yeah, right. So That's... passing the torch a little there bit. There we go, yeah, yeah. Cool. Best gig you've ever been to? Been to. Best gig you've ever um, been to? Best band you've ever seen live or, you know. Oh, God. Well, I, th- I think um, probably the most memorable gig was when me and my mate Steve went to see, um, it was Motorhead Headlining, who I've always been a big fan of. Uh, they were supported by Anthrax. And Hawkwind. And Hawkwind I've been a massive fan of since I discovered cannabis, uh, as I'm sure a lot of people have. In fact, um, I remember, I think mum and dad actually bought Eddie a cassette of Hawkwind when he was about 11 or 12. And like we were listening to it going, what is this? Like, oh, what, it's just repeating. What's, what's Douglas in the jungle all about? <laughs> uh, and then suddenly you get to that age when... You, you discover a bit of puff, and then you put the same tape on, you go, oh, this hits the spot, this is it, you know. Uh, but oh, anyhow, I get it now. Yes, yeah, it all comes together. But anyhow, so we went to see this gig, Hawkwind, Anthrax. Where, where was it? It was in Wembley Arena. Right. Uh, so first, Hawkwind came on, and because it was the arena and not the um, the stadium... There, you weren't supposed to smoke in there, and there was these big security guards up on podiums yeah, yeah. with lights, and any time someone chuffed up a fag, they would go and chuck them out or tell them to go and put it out. As soon as Hawkwind start, like 50 spliffs go up, and you see the lights go, like, and then just turn them off because there's no point trying to stop 50 hippies from yeah, you know yeah, yeah. smoking during Hawkwind. And who should come out during uh, Masters of the Universe... But Arthur Brown. Oh, I thought you were going to say Lemmy. Oh, wait for oh. it. Wait for it. Yeah, Arthur Brown comes out with stockings on his head and starts unravelling them. Uh, and then he, for the rest of the gig, he's dancing about doing his fire, da, 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 sort of little dance. Yeah. And at the very end, obviously, they're going to play Silver Machine. Lemmy comes out and he starts singing it while, uh, while Arthur Brown is doing his, his weird witch doctor dance around. 
And then obviously Anthrax came out, who've never been one of my favourite metal bands, but Christ, when they're live, they can play heavy. And so that was a lovely little mosh pit relief until Motorhead come on and, you know, just, I, you know, you got to praise Lemmy. He's just the, the absolute pinnacle of cool. Yeah. And every time he was going, every time people wouldn't yell loud enough, he's going, we're going to turn it up a bit. <laughs> so, you know, to the very end when we came out and our ears were just ringing and it was yeah, definitely yeah. not good for us, but we had the biggest shit eating grins, oh, man. you know, of our lives. And I think, yeah, then we, we went back to Owens and watched Brain Dead. Sweet. So, yeah, very successful night. That's such a lineup. That's actually huge. Hell man. yeah. Yeah. Stephen Stephen King thinks uh, a, a, a good question to ask anyone is, uh, are you a Beatles or, or a Stone? If you had to choose Beatles or Stones. Aha. Uh-huh. What, uh, like in a fight? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tough old Liverpool lads. Um, well, I, yeah, uh, I do. I like a bit of both of them, but I'd probably say the Beatles because um, since quite an early age, along with Queen, I used to listen to a lot of my dad's Beatles LPs and I just... I really, really got lost in the whole psychedelia stuff. Mm. And you know, like we were saying, Hawkwind, their form of psychedelia maybe is better with drugs. Whereas I could listen to Lucy in the Sky or I Am the Walrus or Strawberry Fields as a kid and really feel like it had that that kind of fairy tale quality that appeals to young minds. Yes. And yes. I still, like to this day, I still love the experimentation. My, my dad's got the book of how they made Sgt. Pepper's. And um, it's, I think it's fair to say, it's probably not one of my favourite Beatles albums, but some of the techniques they used in that, you you know, these are all on a four track. Yeah. I believe, you know, uh, to look at it nowadays when you've got all this technology where you could probably, you could probably record a day in the life in a, in a day, do all the instruments yourself, this, that and the other. They had to make sure every single orchestra piece was on point. Yeah. If they had to record more than 10 times, it's lost, you, you yeah. know, because the, the, the tape gets too thin and all this. Right, right. And they'd have to go back and cut bits out and splice to make yeah. sure that all the songs joined mm. up. So basically, to go back to your original question, I do feel as much as the Rolling Stones did have some psychedelic songs, the Beatles pushed music a lot further. And yeah. they, they come up with things a lot earlier. They um, uh, It really annoyed me when... Back to Oasis, uh, Liam Gallagher had said, oh, all we want to do is emulate the Beatles, and I think we've done that. And he's like, well, no, because you haven't really pushed anything. You haven't, yeah, yeah, yeah. you haven't experimented with weird sounds and tape loops and anything like they did. Surely that was a wind-up from him. I'd like to think Surely so. that was a wind-up. If it we, was, it was beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well. No, he said some very, very dumb things, in my opinion. Yeah. But yeah. it's that typical like rock and roll swagger. I don't think he actually means a lot of it. I think he enjoys winding oh, people up. Well, he up. said, Pink Floyd, were they prog rock? Oh, Christ's sake. <laughs> <laughs> Put this man out of his misery. <laughs> <laughs> it's time for a game. The idea is to respond to musical genres with the first theme that comes into your head. Folk music. Spikes. <laughs> Church music. Oh, Satan! 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 Grunge. Oh, hair. Uh, reggae. Yeah. Rock and roll. Mm. <laughs> Jazz. Mm-hmm. Easy listening. Uh... 
What about Bullstock, man? How did that actually originate? Yeah. How did Bullstock start? Oh, it, it started because the there, there was another little mini, 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 mini festival in, in Bulldog, which still goes on to this day called Sounds of Bulldog, and it used to be done in two pubs. And I remember watching it, and uh, I think I, I think I played there a couple of years and just thought, I can do something like this. I could probably make it a bit more rocky as well. Excuse me. And if I'm completely honest, the first one was pretty much to impress a girl. Um... And then a year later, when it came to doing another bullstock, I hadn't got the girl, but I acquired a festival. <laughs> I'll let you uh, decide who won. <laughs> what, what, what year was the first bullstock? It uh, would have been 2006. Right. Because we've just celebrated the 10th one. Uh, and yeah, it, it, it just became, how big can we push this? After, after doing it in one pub for a day, we've done it for two days, and then we've done it for three days, and then we've done it for three days with two stages and then we pushed it out to the town and all of a sudden it's got to this point where there's 235 bands over three days in about 14 venues yeah and it's just gone manic and i think that's probably as far as we can be asked to push it in a town as big as bulldog yeah, uh, bulldog. yeah. and to be fair it doesn't work don't uh, if it's not broken don't fix it yeah that's like, it, it yes. was brilliant last year yeah and you end up through through it each year everyone gets to know your name and you get that atten- that attention you originally well craved. i think with, <laughs> with the yeah the I stumbled over that a bit but you know no, what you're I mean. definitely right you're definitely right there was um there was a time where i kind of assumed i'll be a rock star one day and yeah. i'll i'll get all the attention otherwise i'll have to just kill someone and get the papers that way but no bullstock has saved someone's life because <laughs> <laughs> i don't think there's anything wrong with so identifying and saying I want. I thought you were going to that say that. I don't think there's anything wrong with killing someone for attention. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there's anything wrong. Worked for Stuart Sutcliffe. Oh you my know. god! Yeah, everyone. He's a household name. He's got his own musical. No, he hasn't. <laughs> oh god. Performing at Bullstock. <laughs> In the town of well, there was going to be G the musical, wasn't there? Oh, but, I think uh, there will be one day. I think yes. there should be. But I don't think there's anything wrong acknowledging and saying, right, I want to be a rock star. I want people to give me attention i think people make excuses around it mm. but the fact that you embrace it it Hell just yeah. works for you it's great i think there's no point me even attempting to try and be modest because that looks fake and that's pretty fucking whack yeah so i mean the old uh, petition that people started to get a statue of me in the high street oh i love that that's, that's brilliant <laughs> is that uh, is, is that could that could that happen um, do you know what? I I, uh, I would seriously doubt it. I love the fact, though, that for those that don't know me, I've got a mohawk, and Bulldog is this uniquely conservative area. Yes. And to get, like, a, a statue of a punk in the middle of this conservative little town, I just, this made me crack up. Uh, but, I mean, I've had a chat with a couple of councillors who have said, wow. well, it's not that far-fetched. Oh, well, that that would be amazing. Wow. Well, well given it? the amount you've contributed to the town, I mean... You know, it'd be a nice little yeah. thing. Recently, yeah. I did see that there was a sort of seven, eight foot tall picture yes. of G himself up Indeed. on the town hall. It's sitting in my uh, landing at the moment um, because we couldn't find anywhere else to put it. And so anyone that walks in my pad must think I'm just a massive ego freak with my own nine foot banner. No, no. They might be right. Well, it's pretty good to see <laughs> you up on the side of the town hall and it's one step closer to that statue. Now, I'm a massive metal fan, but some of it can be a bit too much. I mean, I'd, I've I've bought plenty of grindcore. Yeah. Oh, you know, the really fast, horrible <laughs> stuff. And yeah, the, and to be honest, I'll listen to an album and think, oh, that's, 
Quite enough of that then. Uh, Simon and Garfunkel, I think. <laughs> you know. Sound of silence. Yeah. Although there are certain points, almost actually going back to what you said about chilling out. Now, yeah. a few times, you mentioned Immortal the other day. It's one of my favourite oh, yeah. black metal bands. Now, their really early stuff is probably, as much as it's black metal, it's more on the verge of grind. It's got that brrrr, yeah, like the yeah, whole yeah. album through. Yeah. And I can listen to that and pretty much just kind of zone out and it almost gets to a point where it's hypnotically pulsing. Right. And you're not listening to it doing that. You're kind of, it's it's waving over you. Yeah, it's like white noise in a way. Yeah, exactly. That's what yeah. I find from it. Which is what essentially non is. Yeah. It's sort of a bit like the same thing you'd get in post-rock where you're listening yeah. to like the tone or mm. the texture of it, not what mm. the instruments are doing. Yes. I find that quite nice. A bit like anal sex. You've just got to kind of let yourself go. Yeah, you just, in, you just got it. to be in the moment. Don't yes. think about exactly what you're doing. Just no, get in there. Just get straight in there, yeah. Do you guys want a minute? Of it? <laughs> I've got an Immortal album we can listen to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, romance. Um, do you have anything, any like um, guilty pleasures musically? Yeah, probably plenty. As I, I mean, I, I would imagine some of the. Uh, have you heard of a genre called gore grind? No, Which we is, can guess. It's yes. I mean, at least grindcore has the excuse that it's political, uh, or you know, it's 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 very socially aware. Is it? Yeah, proper proper grindcore is. I mean, the, the essence of grindcore, of course, was Napalm Death, and they are a very left wing, politically aware band. I mean, the what they say about Napalm Death is that the um, the, the the lyric sheet is essential, right? You know, let's face it, because let's face you can't, you can't tell, understand. Yeah, that's it. Now, gore grind go even further. Uh, gore grind not only is it this horrible grind call with these kind of horrible distorted punk guitar riffs, the vocals they don't even try to kind of uh, appease anyone. There, there, there is no. Most of them don't have lyric, lyric sheets. They even some of them. They have this guttural, dry lung vocals, you know, that, that is synonymous with death metal. But they put it through, like, distortion pedals, and some of them sound like pigs squealing. And it's just like... <laughs> now, I play that to some people, and they just, uh, you know, they despair. But I quite like it, and that is my little guilty pleasure. I mean, it, as I say, I haven't even got the excuse to go, oh, no, they're talking about the government being arseholes. <laughs> they are literally just talking about, you know, slashing and maiming and their favourite horror films. So it sounds like they're just trying to be entertaining. I think they are just boiled down entertainment, and mm. they have no respect for melody, which is probably the most punk thing you can be. Well, that's an interesting thing about that is... Um, I watched a documentary on um, avant-garde classical music on, oh, wow. on, on BBC4. And yeah. one of the interesting, interesting things I didn't know before I saw this thing was that a lot of the composers, you're talking like Yanis Zanakis, who's really, I mean, it's his, his stuff is... I'm not familiar. Is, he, is, yeah. he, he, he was a mathematician and an architect and a composer. I oh. see, that's it, because uh, essentially music is maths, isn't it? It's yes, mathematics. Yes, 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 so a lot of that. But for, for him, for him, I mean, he, he was his face was disfigured in the Second World War. And for composers like him, I think Stockhausen's another one, they, they, they said um, melody is, is redundant, because mm. of, of of the horror that we've seen in the Second World War, you know. Yeah. So so our music is not gonna it's not gonna reflect a world with which which a world and and, yeah. a, and a and a and a feeling of melody. It's just gonna be quite 
you know, well, anti that. Twentieth century oh, uh, classical so. music, uh, essentially, it was more experimental because of all the changes going around. If you've heard a lot of the Russian composers after the revolution, like Stravinsky, uh, they're you know the classical of the time was almost frightening. I mean, the the yes, Rite of Spring yeah, yeah. actually started a riot in London when it uh, when it premiered because people just thought it was horrific. Now, you listen to it now and it does sound like just a bit of, con- you know, I suppose contemporary classical music. But to think that caused a riot, you know. Yeah, oh, that's brilliant. But yeah. then the Beatles arriving caused like Beatlemania and they I couldn't suppose they had their the own crowd. upheavals, yeah. I mean, I like this idea of music sort of triggering mass panic and that kind of mm. thing. I do like that idea too. <laughs> do you, on the other side of things, do you think music can save lives? Oh, God. Ooh. Well, I suppose, do you know what? There, there's weirder things that have saved lives. I would imagine that... Uh, what's it? There's, a, there's a scene in Father Ted where there's a very depressed vicar and um, he starts putting on... What's the song? Oh, God. There's a song that he puts... I think it's like something like, it's not unusual or something. And this, this vicar gets really happy again. He's like... Do you know what I'm going to live? I'm going to go and live my life to the fullest. And he gets on the bus to go like into town and then they put on Radiohead and it all goes grey and he gets really sad again. Brilliant. So, yeah, I would imagine, as much as that's obviously not real life, there probably have been some points where someone's heard a song and thought, stuff it, I'm going to go and, you know, up my life. I heard a story on Radio 1 about someone, and I'd never listened to Radio 1, but it really stuck with me. Someone who had sold all their possessions, gone off to a different country and gone to effectively kill themselves. Mm. And just as they were sort of building up the courage, they put some music on. And Crazy by Niles Barkley, of all things, came on and it gave him this sense of, you know what, like, no, fuck it, I'm going to give this one more go. Mm. I'm going to go back... I'm going to confront, at least before, maybe if I do go and kill myself, but I'm going to go and confront these people that have made my life so miserable. Yeah. Fucking, and apparently went back and did it and is still alive. And I'm like, whoa, that's actually pretty cool. I suppose cool. at that point, if you've got nothing to lose. Yeah, you know, I thought, why not? You can do but anything. I think it was like Sarah Cox or someone like that. And it, she, mm. it was just silent. Like she didn't know what to say. Yeah. Afterwards, it was brilliant. That's fantastic, yeah. yeah. So maybe so it I, can I, I reckon, those. no doubt, I mean, if you want to look at it literally, look at like bagpipes in the trenches. They wouldn't have been needed if they weren't essential. And I think, considering back in them days you were lucky to have a radio, the sort of sound of bagpipes while you were going into action probably did give you that extra little bit of paz, or, you know, pizzazz that, you know, uh, allowed you to have the confidence to go and kill the old Jerry's. Yeah, people coming towards you with war drums, that mm. kind of thing, the noise they would make. Yeah, or the hacker. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And the old rugby hacker. Yeah, yeah. I love yeah. all that. Which I suppose not isn't is more of a dance than it is music. But, but still, like tribal dancing music. I mean, we know about tribal customs and people coming up with drums and that kind of thing. Yeah. Using them for like rudimentary beating, uh, that kind of thing. Rudimentary harmonies. Yeah. Uh, pipes made of bones and such. They're wicked. Mm, yeah. So I honestly think that it's kind of something natural within us to come up with music. Yeah. Or at least to appreciate sound. Yeah, because we could perceive like rhythm and melody and all of these kind of things and tone and pitch, mm. but the fact that we can perceive them all together and actually find it as music, yeah, that's always blown my mind. We don't was, need that. It was like uh, fire. Um, it wasn't. Uh, it was kind of discovered rather than invented. 
Yeah. If you see what I mean, you know, I mean, yeah. how can you invent something that is essentially physics and maths and such? Yeah, it was yeah. always yeah. there. That makes no, sense. We've gone a bit deep and meta, but wow. that's a nice one. Yeah, that is. Should we have a joint? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we can uh, we can make that happen. Let's put some Hawkwind on. And now a word for, and now a word from our sponsor. Toast. <laughs> Who's your hero? Musically, who's your hero? Joe Meek is uh, quite a hero of mine, actually. Right. Because I think he, uh, not only was he, I think he's kind of underrated on how much he actually done for recorded music. Mm. He also was probably one of the most interesting characters. Because when you talk about famous producers, people go, Dr. Dre, uh, George Martin, Phil Spector, that's about all I can name. Now, Joe Meek is pretty much, even though Phil Spector was a character, and I'm sure Dre has got his, he's got his stories as well, Joe Meek just had so much to him. He was an occultist. He was um, he was gay at a time when it was illegal. In fact, I think it was only like a few months after he killed himself that it became legal, homosexuality became legal in Britain. And he was a very troubled character. He had all these these stories that, uh, because he was such a fan of the occult, he, he thought that you could kind of, capture these occult sounds and atmospheres through his recording it's a great story where he was probably high on the the legal pills he was taking to like stabilize his emotions and he went down to the graveyard to try and get like a backing track for probably screaming lord such or something like that and he saw a cat and he was insisting this cat was talking to him so that there is a really rare recording i have found it of him talking to this cat he's going where are you? And the cat go, meow. And he thought he was like, going, I'm stuck in hell. Help me, get me out, get me out. Wow. Uh, and so, yeah, when, when you, uh, you can find it on YouTube actually, and it's got the subtitles of what Joe Meek thought he was saying. And this cat says, the subtitles are going, I'm in hell, help me. He's going, meow, meow. That's brilliant. <laughs> Charlie says, <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to give that a go. Uh, just go down a graveyard and interview a cat yeah interview a cat we've got the mics we'll give it a go good idea man yeah okay cool did he obviously he's most famous for uh, Telstar yes but did he um, did he record like was it was it mainly instrumental stuff or did he record no for... no he, well a bit of everything mm. um, I think one of his other famous things when he started off was uh, obviously Skiffle um, was Lonnie Donegan right oh well and uh, other famous ones he done was Johnny Remember Me by John Layton okay. which is one of my one of my all time favourite 60s tracks along with the rest of them uh, and his use of now I'm not massively savvy with production of music but from what I understand his use of compressors and how he used to record in he was like the first independent recorder now what we're recording on now, like your Cubase and every, every one with the guitars now got a home studio and this, that and the other. Half the stuff on there is all pioneered by Joe Meek doing his own thing in his own house. Do you know, what, actually, what you say about bubblegum pop, mm. I do like Joe Meek's bubblegum pop. Right. Because there was always a slight edgy bit in there. He'd always experiment like there's a song, uh, famous, well, it's not a famous song at all, but um, he got Richie Blackmore later on to play guitar for uh, Deep Purple and yeah. Rainbow, and another session musician who I think went on to be really famous, and he was getting them to drop marbles down a toilet <laughs> to get uh, to get like a penny down the wishing well sound. Brilliant. 
and um, like he was getting people to bash on his bathtub to get a really deep bass drum sound. Because obviously back then, if you listen to any 60s music, where the hell is the bass drum? It's all, they've like recorded off what, one or two mics. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So he was the first to kind of try and really get the most out of particular instruments and sounds and effects. Mm. Like yeah. music concrete and all that kind of thing, where you record everything as real instruments, or mm. sorry, real things that aren't supposed to be instruments. Yeah, well, it's I like the that. old, um, when you make sound effects for horror films, and mm. they go, well, if I actually chopped a head off, it would sound terrible. But so I'm going to I'm gonna put a leaf blower into this cactus, and you get the perfect head lopping sound. Yeah, that classic meat cleaver into a watermelon. That's Shonk. it, yeah. That noise. It's... Festival time. Festivals, you're always kind of come to that. So you've <laughs> got, you know... Yeah, to my shame, there's been a few festivals where piss has got thrown. And then I, there was a festival where I was watching Soulfly really up close. And the, the closest portaloos were, you know, a good like 10 minutes walk away. So you finish your pint, you do the usual thing. I gave it to my mental mate Nick, who was the old uh, bassist of Bitch Fodder, and he threw it all over me. And so Ooh. I spent the rest of the festival covered in my own piss. I suppose it's probably better than being covered in someone else's. Why did you give it to him? I really don't know. As I say, just festivals, you can be another person, and that person was not thinking at that point. <laughs> what happened to those clothes? Uh, I, I put them in the bath when I got home, and the amount of yellow stuff that came out of them... I've still got them because one was a really expensive <laughs> Sepultura Brazil shirt. It cost me like 20 quid, which back in the day was a lot of money. Not throwing that away, no matter how sodden it is. Nah. <laughs> well, the best band you saw at a festival? Um, I can remember the loudest band was uh, Celtic Frost. And I remember it because they're the slow, sludgy sort of metal. The, the sound man can put the bass up to the point where it kicks the shit out of your insides and I just remember their intro music was pretty loud and we were like thinking oh but you know this is starting to get a bit a bit good and then they came in with um some called procreation of the wicked and it just has this slow sludgy and the minute that first chord hit you can see everyone it was like everyone got kicked in the stomach and it made your bane your bones shake Oh. And it was that was just so memorable. Probably not the best band I've ever seen live, but definitely, definitely a memorable one. I, I've seen Slayer at about maybe four or five festivals now, and that they they never fail to entertain me because like the fans are just so absolutely mental but great. Uh, Slayer are the only band you can wear one of their t-shirts and you walk out in Amsterdam, and if you see someone else with a Slayer t-shirt, you like go ah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? Sweet. Do, do they always play Raining Blood? Oh well, they have to. That's yeah. probably uh, uh, my one, probably my all-time favourite song because no matter how many times I've listened to it, I can still listen to it, and it makes me feel like you know a seventeen-year-old who's heard his first power chord. Uh, <laughs> it, it is great. It, it is, is a great yeah. song. Yeah. Yeah. Moving stuff. Moving, Moving stuff. Yes. Oh, well, thanks for taking the time to chat to us, G. This has been wicked. Absolutely fucking pleasure. Yeah, yeah. cool. And Thank if you. anyone out there wants Phil and I to come and have a little chat with them and tell their story, just get in touch. We'll include some links. You can come and find us. We'll, we'll, we'll go no further than Bedford. Have some decaffeinated tea. 
cakes, hotcakes, outtakes, hotcakes, outtakes, hotcakes, outtakes. When you see news stories or you see certain documentaries and they're about certain social upheavals or whether it's something really bad going on, and they say, oh, we've asked Sting. And he talks about locking down the rainforest. It's like, shouldn't you talk to a horticulturalist? Oh, when does it ever make that noise? Shing! That's steel on leather. The R&B that really kind of niggled me was like R. Kelly. That was a lovely little mosh pit relief. Can you put them words in the right order?